I don't know. If you see me sipping on my Diet Mountain Dew a little bit more than usual this morning, just know I may be nursing an injured vocal cord. If you have your Bibles, open up with me to chapter 8 of the Gospel of Mark, where we are continuing to walk through that Gospel together. We're in Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. Eight thirty-one through 38 If you do not have a Bible, there should be black Bibles in the pews in front of you, in the ESV Bibles in front of you if you need it. <clears throat> L. Ron Hubbard created a religion like Muhammad and Joseph Smith before him. L. Ron Hubbard has created one of the world's largest religions. And it's called Scientology. L. Ron Hubbard began his career as a fiction writer, a failed journalist. He turned to fiction knowing that you didn't have to really have any facts to work with if you write fiction. And he was churning out science fiction drivel by the barrel full. It was really bad. But he got paid for the word count in his books, and so he sat at his typewriter and he wrote incessantly. Later on in his life, he began to incorporate metaphysical thought into some of his fiction. And the metaphysical thought was just as much fiction as anything that he wrote about aliens. Sooner than you might imagine, Hubbard had developed an entire religion, complete with its own holy book, its own salvation figure, its own concept of salvation. This religion even had a navy still does. If you want to sign up for L. Ron Hubbard's Navy, you have to sign a billion-year contract. If you're afraid of commitment, this might not be the job for you. After the passing of L. Ron Hubbard, the organizational mantle of Scientology was placed onto the shoulders of a man named David Miscavige. And Miscavige was an incredible man. I mean, he was good-looking, athletic, young, smart, talented, he rode motorcycles. He was friends with Tom Cruise. He had a trophy wife until she disappeared. As rumors began to circulate about the organization, people began to ask questions. It was hard to find answers. Pretty soon, people began to escape from the religion, or I would better say the cult of Scientology. And as they escaped, they would tell stories of women being forced into abortions, of kidnappings, of being forced to work on land and sea. And as these people escaped, they would share stories of this abuse, but particularly at the hands of Miscavige himself. He would beat his servants. He would sexually assault women in the organization. As stories like these emerged, men like Tom Cruise and John Travolta would distance themselves from Scientology in general, but from Miscavige in particular. But Miscavige was not content to just kind of take it all lying down. And so he went on the offensive. He got a team of lawyers that were already very active in the cult of Scientology, and they began suing anyone and everyone who even hinted at something liable about Miscavige or the organization. At one point, they were so litigious, that is, they filed so many lawsuits, that they were able to successfully bully the IRS in a tax case. You know, there's two things that they say are certain, death and taxes. So the IRS is pretty formidable in its reputation. But they couldn't stand up to the lawyers of Scientology. It was cover-up, cover-up, cover-up. Protect the image of our leaders. Protect the image of our organization. If Hubbard was the Christ figure of Scientology, then Miscavige was kind of like the Peter, you know, the, the, the big dog who kind of takes the mantle. And we can't have the head of our organization, the Peter of our organization, of our religion, looking bad, can we? 
No religion wants the guy who's at the top of the totem pole looking like, well, like David Miscavige looked. And it's here that we find the Bible to be so incredibly unique. In a world where ancient Persian kings write their own version of history, and anyone and everyone with power and authority, we find them using it to kind of cover up and protect their legacy, especially if you have an entire religion depending on it. In the Bible, we see the leaders of Christianity being very transparent about their sins. Why does the Bible contain so many instances of the disciples, who were the leaders of the early church, and Peter especially, being rebuked, being shown to be foolish and ignorant? Why don't we see evidence of them trying to cover up their blemishes, to paint over their pockmarks? Remember that in this book of Mark, we have the content that Peter communicated to Mark. You would think that if Peter is in this position of power and prominence, and he's communicating these things to Mark, who wasn't there, you would think he would kind of try to smooth out some of the edges, that he would kind of protect his reputation. You know, put your best foot forward kind of thing. Don't give him the picture of you, which you look like first thing in the morning. Give him the IG picture after you've kind of gussied yourself up a little bit. Thanks, Chance. Well, I think he doesn't do that because that's exactly what happened. I think it's obvious that Peter doesn't have an agenda to push. The only agenda that he has is to truthfully communicate the contents of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. No matter how bad it may make him look, and friends, make no mistake, it makes him look bad. Very bad. Over and over and over again. Let's read about that together this morning, starting in verse 31. And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and Seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with the disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's, We'll save it. But what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is God's holy, inspired inerrant word. Amen? Do you remember last week when I talked a little bit about the disciples and the Pharisees and the similarities between the two? I said, basically, with the disciples and the Pharisees, you have two people who are totally blind. And the only difference is that Jesus is mercifully drawing the disciples to himself in a way that he is not drawing the Pharisees. And I said that they were both sinful and blind in the same kinds of ways. Well, I think we see more of that in today's text. Last week I told you that when the Pharisees were asking for proof from Jesus, and asking is too loud of a word, when they were demanding a miracle from Jesus to prove that He is who He says He is, I said that they were acting like their father Satan. Well, this week we see the disciples acting like Satan as well. As a matter of fact, Peter is acting so much like Satan in today's account that Jesus feels no problem with calling him Satan to his face. Why? How is Peter acting like Satan? Okay, note takers, get your pens and paper out. Here is your thesis statement. Peter is acting like Satan 
by trying to lead Jesus away from suffering and out of the will of God. Peter is acting like Satan by trying to lead Jesus away from suffering and out of the will of God. Do you remember the temptation account? God led Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted. Well, he had an altercation with Satan there. And what was Satan trying to do there in the wilderness? Well, he was trying to lead Jesus away from suffering, away from hunger, away from sorrow. Jesus was really hungry, and he was experiencing extreme distress. And then Satan came, and he acted like Jesus' advocate. He said, hey, man, you don't have to go through this. And he offered him many better things in place of the suffering. But it was the will of God that Jesus suffer and experience what he experienced for 40 days in the wilderness. It was part of his path to glory to pass through that time of suffering. And now as Jesus moves towards Jerusalem, as he moves towards his suffering, his death, he begins to teach the disciples about it so that they're not caught off guard. He tells them what he's going to go through and how he's going to endure the cross. That's what verse 31 shows us. We don't really know much about kind of how this conversation went. It was probably more than one conversation. That's what the language here seems to communicate. We know that later Jesus will have another two conversations with the disciples specifically about the suffering that he's going to endure. It's like he's really trying to prepare them and make sure that they know what's coming. Part of his suffering, Jesus says, is going to be the official rejection of the Sanhedrin. The scribes, the Pharisees, all the experts of the law, everyone is going to reject him. Everywhere that Jesus has gone so far, he's either been superficially received or genuinely received by a few, a lot of Gentiles, surprisingly. But he's also been kind of unofficially rejected by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the experts of the law, the scribes. But nobody's gotten together to kind of render a, a formal verdict on Jesus. But Jesus says that that is what is going to happen to him. He will be condemned. And then after that, he will die. In response to this teaching about his suffering, Peter audaciously rebukes his master. You can't talk like that. You're not going to die. You're not going to suffer. What Peter is really saying here is he's saying, that's not the path to power. If you remember, right before this, Peter, for the first time, gets the answer right. Jesus says, who does everyone say I am? And just a bunch of wrong answers. And then he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter's like, yeah, it's my time to shine. You're the Messiah. And Jesus says, yeah, you're right. So now Peter is basically telling Jesus, I just got through saying that you're the Messiah. You can't die. In his ignorant attempt to separate the glory of Christ from the suffering of Christ, Peter is acting like Satan. When a plane crashes, the first thing that the FAA does is they go looking for the black box. Black box. If you watch CNN as they cover a plane crash for six months on end, all you hear about is talk of the black box. Black box. Why? Well, it's because they want answers, and this black box hopefully records what went wrong with the plane before it went down. You know, did, was, there a, was there an engine failure? Was a pilot drunk in the cockpit? Did somebody take over the plane with a box knife? We don't know, but the black box may tell us. Well, I think as we look at Peter, and we see this tremendous error on his part that leads him to be rebuked by his master, we should go in search of the black box. We should try to figure out what's going on in Peter's mind that leads him to make such a stupid decision as to rebuke his master like this. Peter had an image of the Messiah that was incomplete. Peter, like most of the Jews, saw the coming Messiah as a mighty warrior king mounted on his noble steed, with his sword slaked in the blood of the enemies of God's people. Coming to overthrow the Roman oppressors and rulers and lead God's people into an age of glorious earthly victory. 
We've talked about this before. Over and over again in the book of Mark, Jesus tells people, hey, be quiet. Don't, don't tell anybody what I did. Don't talk about it. Why? Well, it's because he knows that they have this wrong understanding of the Messiah. And if word gets out that the Messiah has come, they're not going to handle it properly. At one point in the book of John, chapter 6, Jesus even tells us that perceiving, excuse me, John tells us that perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus knew that due to their wrong understanding of what a Messiah is, they would not deal with him well and it would ruin the plans of his ministry. Peter is unwilling to accept the reality of Jesus as a suffering servant. But here's the real answer to this question. The real answer as to why. Why won't he accept it? Because it would completely undermine everything he thinks he already knows. He thinks he knows what the Messiah is supposed to be. And it makes sense that he's not willing to consider another option. I mean, think about your own lives to see how much this makes sense. How many of us, when confronted by God, as he has revealed himself in his word, have at first rejected the truth of his character and attributes? Because it didn't line up with what we thought we already knew about God. You grew up thinking that God is love, 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 love all the time and there's no justice. You think that God wouldn't send anyone to hell and then you read in the Bible and it's very clear that there is a coming judgment. You just outright reject it. Why? Well, because you don't have a category for this kind of God in your mind. And you don't want to be wrong. You don't want to think that what you think about God is the wrong thing. Many Christians growing up in small churches in the South, probably never even read passages like Romans 9 before. And they get there and they see this all-sovereign God. And it's a complete assault to everything that they feel like they know about who God is. When we see some commands that God has for us, if it doesn't line up with way, ways that we think we're supposed to relate to God or ways that we think we already rightly relate to God, we just kind of reject them out of hand. Giving to the church attending regularly, faithfully, joyfully, serving, church discipline. You can easily spot someone who kind of automatically wants to reject what they're hearing because they usually kind of give it away. They say things like this. I could never believe in a God that, and then insert, would send somebody to hell that doesn't respect my free will, whatever it may be, that would that would kick somebody out of the church. I could never believe in a God like that. Some of us do just what Peter does in today's text when we encounter something about Jesus that we're not willing to accept, that we're not willing to receive. And we do what Peter does, we rebuke Jesus. We stand up on our tippy toes to the God of the universe and we say it's not fair. It's not right. How can it be? That's why the Apostle Paul tells us, hey, you're, you're the clay. You're not the potter. You don't have the right as something that's been made to say to the one that made you, it's not right, it's not fair. You're fallen, he's holy. You're dumb, he's smart. You're tainted by sin, he will never be. In today's text, we see Peter acting like Job in chapters 3 through 39 of the book of Job, where he accuses God, he questions God, he challenges God. Peter's proper response to Jesus should have been like the response of Job in chapter 40, where he says, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Humility would respond in that way. Humility receives what Jesus says about him and about us and about the way we ought to live together. And then it adjusts its thinking accordingly. Our pride is that we so foolishly think that God needs to adjust his thinking to our thinking. 
Jesus, you don't understand what a Messiah is. Adjust to my understanding of the Messiah. But humility adjusts its thinking to God's thinking. And brothers and sisters, by God's grace, I see that happening in the life of this church. I see us reading and hearing and studying God's Word and submitting to God's Word and then changing our lives and our minds accordingly. Now, I'm not saying it's been easy. There has been turbulence, and there probably will continue to be. No, there certainly will be. But those who are in submission to God's will are in submission to God's word. I'll pray that the Lord continues to adjust our thoughts and align our thoughts with God's thoughts, and I ask that you would be faithful to do the same for me as your pastor. One of the main ways that we can adjust our thinking in order to align it with God's thinking is by being careful students of His Word. You see, Peter's understanding of the Messiah drew heavily from scriptures like Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 reads like this. Thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from behind him. A thousand thousand served him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were open. I looked, then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked the beast was killed, Its body was destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The mighty warrior king coming on His steed, sword slaked in the blood of the enemies of God's people. Unfortunately, Peter, representing Jewish thought of the day, didn't balance out this vision of the Messiah, which he received from one part of Scripture, with other aspects of the Messiah, which are seen in other parts of Scripture. Like this from Isaiah chapter 53. For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 
Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. That sounds a little less glorious, doesn't it? Who wants the job of the Messiah from Daniel chapter 7? Everyone. Who wants the job of the Messiah from Isaiah chapter 53? No one. As Jesus teaches the disciples, he tells them about both aspects of his role as Messiah. He tells them about his glory. He says, I will will be glorified. I will be resurrected. That's what verse 31 says. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. So Jesus is being faithful in his communication about the Messiah. He's telling both parts. He will be resurrected and he will go to glory and he will judge and he will also suffer. Daniel 7, Isaiah 53. A careful student of Scripture will not have the kinds of imbalances that Peter has in today's text. Now, to be fair to Peter, it's not like he just has a copy of the ESV lying around that he just kind of picks up and studies whenever he gets curious thinking about the Messiah. But we do. We do have God's Word made available to us. And if we're constantly delighting in Him and pursuing Him by reading His Word, we won't be caught off guard when we learn something about God that challenges us. We'll come to learn to expect God to be reorganizing or rearranging our thoughts about Him. A careful student of God's Word will have his mind and his thoughts about God shaped by God's Word. He'll know that God promises suffering and glory to Christians. He won't have to choose between the two, between, you know, prosperity gospel over here or the uber-aesthetic lifestyle over here. The Christian who has his mind shaped by God's Word won't feel forced to choose between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. He'll know that both truths are held up in the light of Scripture. Brothers and sisters, study God's Word. Let God's Word inform you about the way that you should think about God. Let it illuminate the blind spots that you may have about God in your life. And listen to wiser brothers and sisters who come to you trying to help you see and understand the truth of God's Word. Let it give you categories where there were none. Let it round out the edges of your thought. The best way that we study God's Word is in community which is one of the reasons why Sunday morning is so important. And Wednesday night, which we do with that whiteboard, Wednesday, 6.45. I see things that you don't see. You see things that I don't see. You've experienced this truth of Scripture in your own unique way because of your unique circumstances, because of the way that God has providentially ordered your life. And now you can help me see things in a way that I could never see them if it was just me and the Holy Spirit alone in a room with the Bible. We need to help each other think more clearly about God as we study His Word together. And Peter's ignorance today shows us just how this whole thing works. We've said before that Peter doesn't have a category for a suffering Savior, but neither do the disciples. Look at verse 33 again. It says, But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. So, it's as if Jesus is saying, I know that Peter is the boisterous one, that he's the extrovert, that he's the one that always kind of puts his foot in his mouth, but I know that you're thinking the same thing. So as Peter is getting rebuked by Jesus, so are all the disciples. Peter, the disciples, the Jews, none of them had a category for a suffering Savior. Do we? Do we have a category for a suffering Savior? Wouldn't it be nice if we lived in a world where everything were perfectly black and white? Wouldn't it be lovely if the righteous were given gifts and they prospered all the time and the wicked were always punished? 
blessings for the righteous, suffering for the evil. But that's not what God's Word shows us. As you read the Psalms, you see King David over and over and over again lamenting the fact that although his cause is righteous, he is suffering tremendously. If you read the book of Job, you see a man that God himself calls righteous. And yet he experiences tremendous suffering at the hands of Satan. Job's friends live in a world of black and white. They go to Job and they say, Job, listen man, this stuff wouldn't be happening to you if you would just quit hiding your sin. What are you hiding? There's got to be something in your life that's bringing this calamity upon you. Of course, we know that at the end of the book of Job, when God shows up on the scene, he tells Job, Job, go rebuke your friends because they're not thinking right. And then, of course, we have Jesus Christ, the only perfectly, truly righteous person to ever live on this earth. And no one has ever suffered more than he has. He suffered the fullness of the wrath of God on the cross. And this this understanding of Jesus as a suffering, righteous Savior, it lays waste to the prosperity gospel. It demolishes every foolish argument from every wolf in sheep's clothing that you see on TBN. God doesn't want you to suffer. He loves you. Well, who did God love more than Jesus Christ? His only perfect son. Nobody. And yet we see his son die and suffer the most atrocious things that could ever be imagined, physically and spiritually. Going back to Isaiah 53, we find out that it's not that that God allowed his son to suffer these things, but that he brought this suffering to pass in his son's life. Isaiah 53, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Well, wasn't it the will of the Jews? Yes. Wasn't it the will of the leaders? Yes. Well, it can't. Yes, it is. It was the will of the Lord's as well to crush his son. What does that do to your theology now, Joel Osteen? If you just have enough faith, the blessing can be yours. But who had enough faith or who had more faith than Jesus Christ, the Son of God? If you can just root out the sin in your life, then you'll be able to access the power that God has for you. But Jesus had no sin. If you just get enough faith, you can be healed. You can be healed. Well, Jesus had all the faith in the world, and yet his hands remained nailed to the cross. And it was the will of the Lord for his life. And it was for your good and my good, eternally so. Prosperity preachers don't have a category for a suffering Christian, which is strange because they claim to worship a suffering God. A God who promised that everyone who follows Him will suffer. The Apostle Paul says, It has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only that you believe in Him, but that you suffer with Him. God loves you. He would never want anything bad to happen to you. But what if the good things that God intends to bring into your life, He intends to bring to pass more through your suffering than through your blessing? What if your hunger leads to your holiness? What if your depression leads to your dependence? What if your sadness leads to your salvation? But Sean might come the objector. Jesus suffered so that we wouldn't have to. Well, friend, I wish that were the case. Look at verses 34 and 35. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Do you see that? Whoever, 
follows me will take up a cross. They will lose their life. Every follower of Jesus Christ in some way is called to suffer like Christ, to fill up what's lacking in the afflictions of Jesus Christ. It is critically important that we know this truth, brothers and sisters, for a myriad of reasons. But one of the main ones is so that we don't become angry or disillusioned with God. We'll be mad at God for allowing us to suffer if we have this wrong understanding rather than glorifying God for allowing us to participate in the sufferings of His Son. Imagine the bitterness that will come to a new convert in Christ if all you've ever told them is all of the great blessings that God has for them only to later find out that God has also promised the blessing of suffering. Brothers and sisters, the road that led Christ to glory cut through the valley of the shadow of death. And we would be foolish to think that our road to glory does not cut through the same valley. If our Savior carried a crossbeam on His shoulders, we should expect that our backs will be bowed as well. If the world hated our Savior, we should expect to be hated as well. If the world loves you all the time, always loves everything you ever say, ever do, they can always say, oh yeah, that's a good point. You may not be following in the way of your master. Peter does not have a category for this. And neither do the disciples. They think, we'll be kings in Israel. We'll have a goblet in our left hand and a sword in our right hand and we will dominate the earth. But the reality that Peter would soon come to experience is that both of his hands will be occupied on the road to glory, but they'll be nailed to a cross as he's crucified, just like his master. Peter misunderstands the path to glory. But make no mistake, friends, our end will be glorious. We will one day inherit the earth. We will inherit... God and Jesus Himself. We will have new bodies and every tear will be wiped away. But the road to that glory is more like a funeral procession than a triumphant military return from battle. Do you remember last week how I ended the sermon with a cliffhanger? We talked about Peter being the partially blind man. We said that Jesus healed this man of his blindness and he did it in two stages. And we were like, why would he do it in two stages? You know, He touches him once, do you see? No, it's blurry. He touches him again, now you see. And then we said Peter was the partially blind. But we were like, why was Peter partially blind? I mean, it seems that he was able to tell Jesus the truth. He said, yes, you are the Messiah. And we're all like, yeah, fantastic. He can see, he can see. He sees Jesus. But we said that he was partially blind. Well, now we find the answer. Peter, like the man who was healed after, just partially healed after the first touch of Jesus, he could see Jesus, but he couldn't see him rightly. As the blind man, after the first touch of Jesus, looked around and said, yes, I think I see people, but they look more like trees. Peter now can see, but he, he can only make out the vague outline of Jesus. He only has a rudimentary understanding of the Messiah. He doesn't see him in technicolor. He can't make out the contrasts and the contours of who Jesus Christ really is. He sees him in a form. But he does not see him accurately. And as you follow the story of Peter, you see that this is kind of borne out time and time again as he just keeps on making mistakes and people have to keep on rebuking him and correcting him. Jesus is now on his way to Jerusalem where he will die. And Jesus teaches his disciples about what will happen to him on three separate occasions before the events surrounding and including his death take place. 
Which means that Jesus' Jesus's suffering and death did not catch him by surprise. And it also means that Jesus' suffering and death did not catch his disciples by surprise. And today, because we've read here in these verses that all Christians will take up their cross and follow Christ, that all Christians will lose their life in order to find it, our suffering should not catch us by surprise. What does it look like for us to take up the cross? What does it look like for us to lose our lives? Well, for many of our brothers and sisters the world over, it doesn't look very much different than what it looked like for Jesus. There's the vocal cord. Followers of Jesus the world over are dying. Christians in concentration camps in North Korea, even today. <coughs> Grenades being thrown into groups of Christian children. Pastors being executed by ISIS. Missionaries kidnapping and killing pastors in Panama. The call to carry the Christ for millions of our brothers and sisters the world over looks depressingly like what it looked like for Jesus. And that's the reason why in this church we pray for the persecuted every single week. Every week. Because the Lord commands us to remember our brothers and sisters in Christ who are taking up the severest forms of the cross. Remembering them in prayer. Advocating for them in prayer. And for many of us in the Christian West, the call to pick up the cross may look a little different, but it's still just as real. I want to ask us some questions to help us clarify our thinking on this. Are we willing to follow Jesus if it means that we lose some of our closest friends? Are we willing to follow Jesus if it means that we will be alienated from our family? Are we willing to follow Jesus even if it means that we have to leave a church that's not healthy and find a church that's more healthy? Are we willing to follow Jesus if it means the loss of our reputation? Are we willing to follow Jesus if it means losing our lives? Are we willing to do these things? And this strikes right at the heart of Jesus' rebuke of Peter in verse 33, where he says, You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Well, what does he mean by the things of man? Well, the tendency for self-preservation, to avoid suffering, to try to save ourselves, this kind of spiritual fight-or-flight response. As we ask ourselves these questions, are we, are we thinking primarily about our own self-preservation or are we thinking about the things of God? Are we thinking, how is this going to turn out for me or are we thinking, how is this going to turn out for God's glory and for the good of His elect? When you think about self-preservation and when you're inclined to preserve yourself, to avoid the suffering at all costs, that, that feeling can become irresistible. And that's why Jesus talks about his followers not being ashamed of him in verse 38. Let's read verse 38. He says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. You see, when you want to avoid suffering, you'll do anything to avoid it if your mind is not set on the things of God, including deny your master, including deny your Savior. Again, Peter learned this lesson the hard way. In Matthew chapter 26, Peter says this to Jesus, typical Peter. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Typical Peter. Loud, boisterous, bold, hard-charging, like a chihuahua that just barks a lot, willing to attack the Rottweiler or the pit bull. When I read this, it scares me because I see a lot of myself in Peter. I'll never bow the knee on inerrancy. I'll never give in to the whims of the culture on sexuality. I'll never do whatever. 
But not long after this bold proclamation of Peter, we read from the same pen of Matthew, Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with the Galilean. That's Jesus. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I I do not know the man. Peter, still focused on the things of man more than the things of God, wanted to keep his life. He wanted to save his life. He didn't want to lose his life. And so he denied his master. No one may be putting a gun to your head this week and asking you to choose Christ or choose your life. But that pornography on your computer may be calling out to you even today. We still deny Christ even if we don't do it with our lips. We still deny Christ even if we do it in secret. We don't put it to death. We're not willing to lose our lives. We're not willing to lose these carnal pleasures. Why? We're ashamed of the suffering that will come when we confess our sins to one another. We're afraid of what people will think about us. Our fear of man is more prominent than our fear of God. You think that keeping the secret won't hurt you, but you are wrong, my friend. Your soul is at risk. But here's the thing. You may persevere in keeping that pleasure for yourself. You may find a way. You can keep it secret. Nobody will know. You'll save your life in that regard. And that's why Jesus asks you this question. What does it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul? I used to smoke cigars. I mean, before I was a Christian, I smoked many other things. But I started smoking cigars as a Christian. I started reading theology. I felt convicted that, you know, like, hey, I don't think, as long as you don't inhale the cigarette, the smoke of the cigar, I don't think it's a sin. I think it's up to the Christian conscience. And so I wanted to be a cool guy, you know, have a beer, drink, smoke a cigar. But then I stopped smoking one day. It's because I saw a man with half of his jaw missing. When someone's missing a piece of their jaw like that, nine times out of ten it's from cancer, related to dipping or smoking or whatever. Pipes. And when I saw that, when I saw this man with half of his jaw missing, I stopped and I asked myself, is it worth it? Even if I'm not in sin, if I were to one day find out that I had cancer in my jaw and I had to get half my jaw cut out, would I say, you know what, man? Those cigars, they were really worth it. I imagine that's how some of us will feel when we get to the judgment seat of Christ with our hidden sins, with all of our attempts to save our lives and to preserve ourselves and to save our earthly pleasures. We'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ and he will render verdicts on our souls. And some of us will say, It wasn't worth it. Some of us may just be the least in the kingdom of heaven, and it still won't be worth it. But some of us will be cast out of the kingdom. And then we will say for the rest of eternity, it wasn't worth it. My sin wasn't worth it. Why did I try to save my life? Why did I try to hang on to this thing that was killing me? Why did I deny my master with my deeds? It's not worth it. 
But what we have available to us is worth it. What God is promising us is worth it. This text for Christians is a call for us to embrace our suffering, to embrace the purging of our lives, to battle our flesh, and to seek the way of our Master, and to follow Him in suffering. But if you're here and you're not a Christian, you should know that this text is a promise to you. Suffering? How is, how is suffering a promise? How is dying a criminal's death on a cross like Jesus Christ, how is this a promise? It's a promise because the pleasures that you are fighting to keep right now, that you have a death grip on that you won't relinquish, they're not even that pleasurable anyways. They feel good for a moment and then they flee, leaving you in despair. The best pleasures that this world has to offer you are laden with arsenic and they will kill you. And they will kill you slowly and painfully. And before you get to hell, you will experience a foretaste of the suffering that awaits you. And that's meant to lead you back to God. The pleasures of this world satisfy for a moment, but then they destroy you in the next. But God is offering you a pure pleasure. A perfect pleasure. A permanent pleasure. pleasure that will never fade. He's offering you himself. And he's calling you today, even today. And he's telling you that the only thing you have to do is to trade in these lesser pleasures. Put the meatloaf back in the fridge and take the filet mignon. Get rid of the pinto and accept the Cadillac. Put to death and lose all of these lesser pleasures that you are living for and embrace something that is infinitely better. Lose this world, which is already doomed anyways, and gain your soul. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would move in our hearts this morning and take these difficult truths and apply them to our lives. May this church be marked by a willingness to enter into the suffering of its master. Amen.